some probably some latent cornish roots is there like um a certain place or city or nation or uh, multiple nations or cities that are kind of the center or the epicenter of permaculture where people are up on it people are really on it or is it just super spread out well i mean the place that it it um i mean the country that it, it started was was first sort of developed and um, you know uh, con conceptually uh, pieced together was was Australia right Bill Mollison and Bill Mollison and David Holmgren <clears throat> in the um, in the late in the you know the late seventies early eighties when it really was like sort of codified mm -hmm. and um, of course this was this was an out an outgrowth of the environmental movements, so the, mm -hmm. the growing environmental awareness that started in the late '60s mm -hmm. with you know people like Rachel Carson and and the like, um, and then of course you know you had books like Limits to Growth, uh, Limits to Growth, and and um, you know declarations from the Club of Rome looking at uh, the effects of sort of global globalized industrialization and. And, and on the environmental, the detrimental environmental effects that came from mm -hmm. that, um, and I th and Australia is interesting because you know it's a it's a sparsely populated continent. Right. There's more kangaroos than people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's literally, they, they told me that when I was there. I was like, for real, for real. Yeah. 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 I, I mean, that's, that's. I mean, it's, I mean it's, the place is. I mean, it's enormous. It's the size of the continental U.S. and it's you know they mm. got maybe what 22 million people. Mm -hmm. So there are more people in California, mm -hmm. you know, than than there are in in the entire the entire continent. So, but it also happens to be, it's the driest continent. It's mm -hmm. the driest inhabited continent on the planet. Right. It's the flattest. Mm. It's it's had the most amount of environmental um, degradation and destruction in the shortest amount of time. Really, um, it wasn't always like super de no, desertified. No, no, no. no mm. it's 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 been sort of pushed over the edge. Um, you know, again, the, the the fastest because of an attempt to try to kind of graft onto that particular sort of physical setting, environmental setting, things that had been done in Europe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and because that that particular sort of biome, that the, the ecology that makes up Australia is very, very unique. Um, sort of the, 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 the margin for error uh, mm -hmm. uh, isn't, wasn't very large. Right. So you, that, you're introducing all these other species, trees, people, like it's just... And even the way that the landscapes were managed. Mm -hmm. You know, the way, you know, the way, say, for instance, um, livestock was, mm -hmm. was um, you know, was, was managed to introduce the landscape, the way they were moving across the landscape. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> All of those things you just mentioned, you know, the, the introduction of invasives, the, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the cutting down of trees. Um, you know, there's certain things about the, the sort of the hydrological character of, of the landscapes. There. I mean, all, all of those things. Um, you know, the very particular to that place, mm -hmm. and the again the the mismanagement has brought about uh, 
a certain set of conditions that necessitated Australians learning how to do things in a, in a very different way. Some Australians recognizing the fact that they needed to do things in a different way. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the interesting thing about sort of permaculture as a, as a construct, as a conceptual construct, is that, I mean, B- Bill Mollison, you know, says even in the, you know, the beginnings of, of a lot of his writings that there's really nothing new about permaculture in and of itself. Right. Um, really, it's, um, it's a collection of um, a, a type of environmental or ecological wisdom that came from, that comes from a lot of indigenous cultures, people mm-hmm. that live very, very close mm-hmm. to nature. The, the, what permaculture has attempted to do is to articulate certain common threads that you'll find in all of these different mm-hmm. um, sort of indigenous ways of being in the world and sort of, uh, you know, create a type of, uh, I guess, scientific, more scientific, quote unquote, mm-hmm. scientific presentation of, mm-hmm. of those ways. Right. And, and looking at different methods or different ways that you can link mm-hmm. different sciences, different areas of study that can explain functionally what is it about these 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 ways of being right. that um, you know provides I think a more um, attractive a more viable means for, for for humans to be to live in the world without destroying the places that they live in mm-hmm. and um, and I think it just it presents some very interesting set of possibilities if it's taken seriously you know right. it's taken seriously and um, and I think that's one of the things that we're going to continue to see as things worsen as conditions, sure. you know, continue to, to get more, um, dire. So dire, like hard to ignore. Right. I mean, these are things that I think more people are going to have to take on. Yeah. You're, but you're seeing like, I think permaculture as a concept, even as like a buzzword has almost taken on the same power or the same, um, kind of cultural weight as something like sustainable like you just hear permaculture thrown around mm-hmm. and like i was there's this uh big music festival in california called symbiosis mm-hmm. and it's coming up in sometime this summer i think it's september maybe and uh my dave platford he's doing like some art for it okay. so but um anyway i was checking out their website and there's it's huge dude it's kind of like burning man-esque where there's all these art and music and like for three days like thousands of people descend on like you know some kind of like lake or something like that right but they have these like workshops beforehand mm-hmm. and they have like you know yoga workshop and like meditation retreat and they have a permaculture retreat as part of this music festival oh wow okay and i was like yo that's crazy that's like that's some unprecedented very California, but like <laughs> to the fact that that is a vibe. Like, yo, I'm about to go listen to music, and before that, I'm gonna like learn about permaculture for right, like, right. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, what's I think what's interesting about it <clears throat> is I think that there there aspects of permaculture. You know, there are different aspects to what makes up permaculture. I mean, I think there are different sort of facets that appeal to. To appeal to different sensibilities. Mm-hmm. I think. I think there's a certain sort of um, kind of lifestyleism mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that's often attached to permaculture that doesn't necessarily do it 
justice in that in that I'm saying you know I want to clarify what I mean by that right is that I think that that um permaculture I think when it's when it's presented properly mm-hmm. and when it's properly contextualized I think presents a very powerful set of possibilities to again Present and it it, it it has the potential to to show have to show how we can create sort of a civilizational infrastructure mm-hmm. um, that can be that can be regenerative as opposed to destructive. Right. Um, right. Right. Because if you so for that for someone who just doesn't really know they've heard the word maybe. But like, how? What is? I'm sure. You, what's your elevator pitch for like what permaculture? <laughs> well, you know, the, the, it's it's a it's well. First, it's it's described as being a design science. Mm-hmm. It's a design science. It's a linking science between, again, different areas of study between different fields of study, um, which which provides us a chance to, again, supply all of the needs of, of human societies, human civilizations, food, uh, shelter, again, fiber, mm-hmm. um, again, infrastructure, all of the things that human societies need in order to live. But again, in a way that does not destroy the places in which we find ourselves um, living. And this is, this is accomplished by recognizing the fact that we do live in a um in a world that has a certain type of um uh living infrastructure mm-hmm. nature mm-hmm. and that we can create systems that provide all of our needs that also work in concert with um natural systems with living systems mm-hmm. um but you first need to understand how these systems operate and if you and if you can understand how if you if you make it a priority to understand how they operate, then you can you can possibly create some kind of uh, mutually beneficial arrangement. You can, it's an attempt to try to renegotiate right the relationship of human beings to the natural world. Right, right. Now this isn't you know this isn't necessarily some kind of um, sort of airy fairy you know uh, hippie stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I and I don't want to say you know and that's not to sort of besmirch. You know, or or, or we love hippies. hippies. You know, the good people, some of the best people. How can you be mad at a hippie? Yeah, exactly. So, like the the, the nicest, sweetest, you know, mm-hmm. people I've, I've ever known that would be characterized as quote unquote hippies. Mm-hmm. But um, and I and I think by the same token, it's also not necessarily concerned with creating some kind of utopia. Right. But I think I think it's it's trying to to give people an opportunity to to have some kind of intelligent approach to being in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I like to think that people have enough, you know, enough intelligence, enough of a sort of mental capacity to be able to, to, to you know, to live without, again, taking a dump in your own bed. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, mm-hmm. um, it's, it's, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not the hallmark of, you know, of a, of a, of a being with a large brain. Right. <laughs> and, and, you know, and I, and I and I think I think the beauty of of you know what we're seeing happening in the world now, as far as you know, sort of 
climate change or climate weirding, whatever you want to call it. Mm. Um, you know, there's you know there's massive amount of, of land degradation now. There's problems with flooding and drought. And, you know, um, uh, destruction all, of the freaking ocean. The yeah, food the ocean, supplies, oceans like, are acidifying and. You know, it, you know, there's all you know. You're losing however many species a day, and right, um, the rainforest is yeah. being logged. And, yeah, know. land degradation, desertification, the whole, you know, the whole nine yards. And now, you know, you're seeing armed conflicts, things like the Arab Spring. I mean, that that whole phenomenon was said to partially be due to, um, uh, well, in, for example, Syria. You mm-hmm. know, there's a massive amount of internally displaced people that actually. Uh, started with the chronic droughts that started occurring in the mid 2000s mm. you know and that that actually you know in was start started to to create the conditions that that the unrest there um ended up resulting in um the, the, those conditions are forcing us to have to look at mm-hmm. the world in a very different way mm-hmm. um and again i think it's sort of a hallmark of you know in, in, uh, in, in intelligent people if they again in looking at what's happening Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's some understanding that you know we need to we need to sort of plot a new path, or else we're just simply not. This is this is going to be just a very unpleasant place to be, mm-hmm. and it doesn't it doesn't have to be that way. Um, and I think what's even more interesting about about that is if you look at sort of historically the the rise and fall of civilizations, mm-hmm. and there are a lot of books that are written about this, a lot of studies that have been done, this sort of historical surveys mm-hmm. that they've all they've all failed, um, they've all failed for, for for very similar reasons, and um, invariably there's been some variation on the theme of um, undermining the resource base that these civilizations have. Um, have relied upon in order to exist and right. then once you use up all the resources you have to pick up and go somewhere else well the problem now is there's nowhere else to go mm-hmm. so how do you how do you get over the hurdle of okay you're now in a world where you have seven billion plus people right there's really you know there's really there's really no there's no new, new land to go to you know there's two billion hectares of 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 hep, you know severely degraded land 75% of that is potentially recoverable. Mm. A half billion hectares. Deserts, basically. You're hmm? Deserts, you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, it's like, like, you know, heavily like degraded land that's no longer either functional mm-hmm. or, or productive. Um, you know, and about, again, about 500 million hectares of, of that land is actually recoverable. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. 75% of the 2 billion, that's a billion and a half hectares, is recoverable. About a half billion has been abandoned. That's what it is. So, you know, it's it's a it's a it's a crisis. But I think you know, like any crisis, there's also an opportunity that's presented if if you sort of read the situation right um, properly. And I think the question is, how, you know, how do we respond to that challenge? Um, because the, you know, you can you can recover, mm-hmm. um, you can recover degraded land, you can recover quote unquote dead land. The dead, you know, the land's not dead; it's just dormant. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you understand what needs to be done to, you know, mm-hmm. to fix the problem, then it, it can be fixed. But you first have to decide that this is this is a priority. This is right. something that needs to be done. And then, you know, it, it, you have to invest the time and the resources and the, you know, and the and the capital uh, necessary to bring it, you know, to, to to do the job properly. So that's the thing. Like people bring you you on. Uh, you got NGOs, governments as advisors on project. Cause that's my question. It's like, 
are people with big bread and who are really, you know, movers and shakers seeing the importance of it. Because what you see from a lot of the kind of counter permaculture thing is like, look, man, we got all this technology. We got all this. We need to genetically modify. We need to maximize. We need to. Monsanto's important because we got all these people to feed. We got 8 billion people to feed, you know, and so all of this talk about the the natural way that was cool if you're just a small village or what have you but like you're trying to feed the whole world we need freaking you know what i'm saying that whole narrative yeah i mean i mean the funny thing is um i mean just just um just to, to state it very simply, I mean, it's, that's not true. Right. Um, and and there been a, there again, there, there's been quite a lot of work done in the way of studies to actually demonstrate that that narrative of you need you know genetically modified organisms or food in order to feed everybody. You need all if, these chemicals and pesticides. Yeah, and... I mean, if if anything, well, the funny thing is that there's a there's a outfit called the Rodale Institute in, in in Pennsylvania. They just completed a 30 year study showing that um, actually. Um, uh, or, uh, organic agriculture, for example, actually outperforms conventional ag. Mm-hmm. You know, ag that uses all the mm-hmm. chemicals and all these things. Um, it actually is better under um, drought conditions. I mean, this is definitely the case with you know genetically modified mm-hmm. um, foods. Um, and you know, the problem now, even with the current system that's in place, as as inefficient and as destructive as it is, it still does produce enough food to feed everybody. Mm-hmm. It produces roughly one and a half times as much food as is required to feed everybody on the planet. The problem is, by and large, is distribution of it, mm-hmm. and and then also the the there's a problem in thinking that the the way that we fix sort of the hunger issue in the world is is um, is through quantity as opposed to quality, right. because a lot of the food that's produced is actually, in terms of its nutritive content, is 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 severely lacking, mm-hmm. and and that is directly linked to the condition of of land, mm-hmm. um, because really, if you think about it, um, when you grow something, uh, when you grow food, for example, um, you're actually pulling up nutrients in order to actually provide the the plant or whatever is being produced. Um, to provide it the means to actually fully mature. Mm-hmm. And there, there needs to be some sort of reinvestment or, or, uh, or, or replenishment of the nutrients that are pulled up to, to produce the food. And in most cases, uh, especially with conventional ag, industrial agriculture, um, that reinvestment doesn't take place. Uh, so, you know, the production of food is like a type of mining. It's like, mm-hmm. a, it's like a nutrient mining. Mm-hmm. Until you get to the point where you pull up everything and there's nothing else to pull up, and then you got to go somewhere else. Mm. And this, interestingly enough, this is sort of the story of how human civilizations or why human civilizations have moved from place to place is because mm. they, you know, people have been in one place, they sort of use up the land to a certain point. There's nothing else to use up, and then you got to go somewhere else. And so, um, you know, this this is why human history is progressive in terms mm. of. Again, it's sort of ge- geographical uh, uh, movement from one place to another. But again, if if even if we look at even if we look at 
the you know the amount of land that now is is used to grow food on, which is roughly again about one and a half billion hectares, about three three point seven five billion acres. Um, if you look at some of the more successful examples of people, again growing food on a relative, being able to produce a lot of produce a lot of food on on a on a small amount of area, actually high quality food without the chemicals or any or, or the type of destructive practices. If you were able to scale up those methods, you'd only lead, you, you would only need about five percent of the current area on the planet that is now used to cultivate or, mm. or to grow food mm. to feed everybody. You only need about five percent. Mm. That's how inefficient right, you know right, right. The, the methods that we're using now are. Mm. Um, in in supplying, you know those, and that's the thing. Need. Permaculture isn't on some like uh, luddite. Like, don't use technology. Oh, it's no, actually no. like use all the tools possible. But the point is that that it, you can work with nature so that you're actually putting more nutrients back into the soil and having everything be this like this flow. So everything is complementing each other instead of that you're just like, you know. Destroying and destroying and destroying. Yeah, I mean the the, the idea is that you you know it's not a battle. You know you're not you're not trying to you're not trying to fight the natural world. And I think this is this kind of goes back to some I think fundamental misconceptions or mistakes that are that are made um, as to how the human being is positioned in relation to. The natural world mm. to where somehow we're separate from it as opposed to being um a, an integral part of it right. and instead of instead of it of seeing it as an adversary or something that needs to be dominated mm-hmm. um it's actually something that if we are looking at it with the sort of the th- with with a uh, from from the right perspective right it's actually something that can can make us better than we are and we can actually help to make it better than it is, and that there is again a, a sort of a mutual, uh, a mutually beneficial position or relationship that can be developed. It's sort of like, you know, you're part of a body, mm-hmm. right? And the you know what's the, the 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 thing that makes the body what it is and as as effective as it is is that it's it's all of these different parts, all of these different organs that have different functions. And they're all linked together in a way that each of these different organs are made better for being linked to another organ that does something that it can't do. So everybody sort of has a job that the other organs need in order to make the body complete. Mm -hmm. And human beings are just one of many organs that makes the natural world what what it is. And that and that body can be made either better or worse depending on how we as an organ function within it, and we happen to be sort of a, a pretty dominant part of the body that right now is acting in a way that um, you know it we're sort of is, up, dude. It's sort of it's sort of inducing an autoimmune response. We're the freaking hemorrhoids of that. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're just this flaring up, this is true. and everybody's like, "Okay, dude, we can't. Like, you're just screwing it up for everybody. We, no, can't, we can't just go about our life." No, this is the, yeah. I mean, this is the unfortunate thing, but you know, it's like, but that I think if if it's a matter of just shift, you know, being able to shift perspectives. But I mean, I think this is you know, it's part of a of a narrative. That um, I think too many people have been fed for for a long time, and that again, it's sort of this idea that we're supposed to be dominators, mm. 
of, of nature as opposed to, I mean, sort of in the, I think most of the sort of Abrahamic, if we start, you know, getting to discussions right. about religion or, or you know, sp uh, sp spirit, spiritual traditions, faith traditions, we are supposedly sort of stewards as opposed to dominators. Khalifa. Of, yeah, well, so, yeah, exactly. So it's, you know, you're the, vi the, the vice gerent. And I right. think that's something that has been um, completely um, misconstrued. Um, and, and uh, you know, we haven't actually gotten into this yet, but, you know, we, we'll, we were talking about some of this earlier today. But I think one of the things that I think really makes permaculture particularly powerful is that it is it's not so much about the techniques or the strategies or the methods that are applied to, you know, dealing with land or, or what have you. Mm -hmm. It's the, what are the things that are informing the actions, mm. which are then sort of translated to, to land and the natural world. And, and, there's a, and there's an ethical sensibility, there's an ethical component that lies at the heart of, of what makes permaculture what it is. And there, there is this, um, you know, this ethical intelligence, right. this ethical awareness, which I think, you know, ethics are, are, are kind of seen as being a, somewhat of a quaint idea right. in the world now, sort of an antiquated idea. For sure. Um, and, you know, we, we're more concerned about technique mm. and sort of the, the you know, the, the sort of kind of like technical triumphalism. Right. You know, the, the ability to be able to meddle right. and manipulate things and not asking whether or not having the ability, having that ability um, is something that we should, you know, sort of impose on the world. Well, that's actually part of the scientific method is that the questions of morality or right or wrong are actually like you leave that out of the discussion right. because it's not proper. It can't properly be measured quantitatively by in the material realms by those tools. Right. Like so. You know, they say, we'll leave that to the philosophers and the theologians. But inherent in, that's the difference between science as a tool, which is an incredibly powerful tool, obviously, which leads to technology and leads to the modern world. But there's a paradigm which says, which is very dominant, which says the only way to know truth at all is through the scientific method. There, there can be no other truths. Okay, you have your truth, maybe with a lowercase t, but mm -hmm. there can be no truth with a capital T outside of the scientific method. And, you know, that's scientism, like as an ideology, which... Yeah. And yeah, man, I mean, I think you're hitting the nail right on the head in the sense that, like, it really takes a paradigm shift. Like, for, like, what are we as human beings? What is the earth? What are we doing on earth? You know, you re it really has to be that big. Yeah. It can't be just like tweak a little thing. Like, you know what I mean? Like, otherwise it's just a bandaid. Like yeah. we need a radical paradigm shift. And it's interesting that, you know, Saeed Hussein Nasser talked about that. Like he wrote like man and nature, or those mm -hmm. books, like yeah, in the sixties or something. Like he yeah. was the first one talking about it before anyone was even really thinking about it. And he, uh, he, he really like offers that critique that like you, you really have to step out and and see that all traditional indigenous peoples really saw the earth as this sacred web of life that they mm -hmm. were connected to. Mm -hmm. And if you don't, if we don't start to challenge the concept of the earth as just like kind of this like tool to be manipulated at our will, mm -hmm. um, and it's like, but how do you do that? And I mean, 
I think that really gets down to where it's at. And it's like, um, you know, Louis C.K., the comedian? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He has this bit that's really hilarious because he's like, it's funny that, like, the right-wing Christians, the people that claim to, like, love God the most, <laughs> are the most unconcerned about what we do to the earth. And he's just like, wouldn't you think that if you believe, like, God, that he left this for you and he was going to come back, that he, that you, wouldn't you be shook? That like when he gets back, he's just gonna be like, "What'd you do?" <laughs> like he's like, "I gave this all to you." Like, what did you do? He's like, "The polar bears. The polar bears are brown. Why are the polar bears brown?" And he's just hilarious that bit because he's just like, "Dude, he just shows like the stupidness of him." He's like, "I don't know." Um, and he's like, well, because we needed cars. And he's like, what's a car? And he's like, we needed gas. He's like, gas? Why'd you take that out of the earth? It was in the earth. He was like, well, you know, we wanted to go faster and faster. Like, he's just like, he was like, what, 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 why didn't you just eat the food that I left there? He's like, well, no, because it didn't have bacon on it. I wanted bacon. He was like, he was like, he was like well, you know, like we needed jobs. He's like, what is a job? I just left the food there, sleep on the ground, make a house. Like, and it's really just... You know, like, the best comedy is getting at, like, bigger questions in a way that disarms it. No, absolutely. I mean, but, you know, I think that, I think what, what he was, I mean, what you were just pointing to is this is this larger question of, I mean, aside from having sort of a certain level of technical prowess is, again, what is what is that technical prowess informed by? Mm-hmm. And, then, and then, and so now you have to start talking about, you know, wisdom. Right. Know, is, is, is there is there a type of wisdom that informs your actions? You know, is there wisdom? Is there ethics? Um, you know, we can talk about is there is there an etiquette? Mm-hmm. You know, like is there like a, mm-hmm. the, the whole concept of adab? Mm-hmm. You know, being able putting things in their rightful place. Again, I think you know now those, those again are, are sort of quaint ideas mm-hmm. um, that don't necessarily have a lot of currency. It's just a matter of whether or not you are again, technically capable mm-hmm. of doing something or not technically capable of doing something. And, and again, it's just a sort of like technological triumphalism, it's mm-hmm. sort of scientific triumphalism. Right. And that leads, you know, that's, that's leading us or that has led us to a particular point in history at this point, human history, that, um, that only now, I think, you know, within the past, say, 30, 40 years, 45 years, um, people are being forced to rethink because that particular way of looking at the world is creating a pretty, um, I mean, it's creating a place that is becoming increasingly more uninhabitable, increasingly more hostile. And it's creating a, a, a situation where people are becoming, you know, that much more, um, you know, pr- prone to, prone to, 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 right, to conflict. Right. Um, because you know, it, it's it's you know you 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 you're, you're having a, sort of the vast majority of humanity um, subject to the whims of a very of a relatively small number of people that have access to you know the the you know the the, the material the resources that is that are creating you know a, 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 an enormous amount of convenience for a small number of people mm-hmm. and. Again, a, a very unpleasant place for the vast majority of people, mm-hmm. and at some point, you know that that's got to end. I mean, there's a, a, a I think it was a 
the guy I quote, uh, Herbert Stein, who I think was the chief of uh, economic advisors for uh, was President Ford and President uh, Nixon. And he said that things that can't go on forever don't. Hmm. <laughs> and I mean, this, you know, and it's obvious that, mm-hmm. you know, this can't go on forever. But, um, you know, but I think that point you were making, I think, it, you know, you have to start reassessing the assumptions that 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 are made, which somehow justifies and legitimizes a certain ways of being in the world. And I think, as you said, you know, this this kind of paradigm as of man is dominator. Right. It's just, it's just, it's, it's, it's a bit, um, I mean, logically that like, it, it just can't last. Yeah. You know, it, it's, you know, you have to, you have to, you have, we have to find another way of sort of renegotiating the manner in which we, you know, we operate. Um, and that's becoming more and more evident. It's, 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 I mean, you, you can't, you can't continue to be sort of willfully ignorant of that fact. Right. You know, it's, it's, this is not. You know, this is not something, it's becoming increasingly, I mean, it's non-negotiable. Mm-hmm. You know, it's non-negotiable. You can look at, look at the situation in California. You know what I'm saying? Right? <laughs> right where we are sitting. You know, here. I mean, right where we're sitting right now, you know, you have a, you know, an unprecedented drought where, you know, for the first time in the history of the state, the, you know, the governor announces a statewide mm-hmm. you know, rationing of water, or at least cut, cutting right. of water is what, 20, 25 or 30 percent. Right, um, you know, exceptional drought. It's right. actually beyond severe drought. Right, exceptional drought. Yeah. Like there's on some. That's what's crazy about it is they're on some. Like we're about to run out of water in a couple years, and like, and it's like, and then, and they're all like, and then, like there's not on some, and then so then there's just like some, and then it's like, well, uh, I'm not really sure. Like it's like yeah. nobody's like us. Really like well, we have a plan. Yeah. Everyone's like. Well, and it was a trip, like driving over to the city to San Francisco, you know, the Bay Bridge, where it's like whatever, freaking, who knows how many thousands and thousands of people cross that every day. Yeah. And it's like they got the big sign, the LED sign, and it's like, refrain from using too much water, take shorter showers, take, take, you know, don't water yeah. your lawns. And I'm like, yeah. trip out, dude. This is on some, you know what I mean? Like that's a, but I really feel like, and that kind of, this was one thing that I was coming up as you're saying all this is like. The I don't know if it's the pessimist in me or just the like, but it's like my question is, will people really care until it's just hits the fan? Like, is it like, you know, people are just it seems like people are not really going to trip off how much water they use until water starts stops coming out or like they ration like, oh, yeah, from like um, 10 a.m. to 2 PM, yeah, four hours a day, that's when your water runs. Otherwise, the tap's just off. Like, then cats are going to be like, yo, yo, this is super serious, dude. Otherwise, it's like, I'm going to just take my hour-long shower and listen to my freaking radio and just kind of dance and sing along. Well, I mean, but but I think that's, but those are the people we've been sort of raised to be. Mm. Like, that. that's, that's who we are. Like, that's the expectation. Right. Is that... You know, we 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 have been acculturated, socialized, and and taught to sort of indulge ourselves. I mean, that's how the place runs. I mean, you're not we're not even really citizens anymore. Like we're, we're consumers, right? You know, and and the degree to which you are seen as having value in you know in in a in in the type of society or culture that that we've come up in is the, is the degree to which you are are willing. 
and capable of engaging mm -hmm. in this activity of being a consumer. Mm -hmm. and, and it's very difficult to disengage from that, um, especially given the degree to which you have all of this sort of messaging and material that is, you know, is, is trying to induce you into being that kind of being, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, you look at the, you know, it's all the advertising and it's the movies and the shows and the, you know, product placement. And the, mm -hmm. I mean, that, you know, that, there's like this assiduous, uh, attempt, um, you know, to create, uh, a, a certain type of, of person mm -hmm. that is will you know is is that wants to or that should want to in order to be seen as sort of normal you know within this particular context they want to they want to be that person that you know you know go to the mall and mm -hmm. you know go to the amusement park go to the movies go mm -hmm. to the supermarket whatever you know you're engaging in that activity right and then and then and I think and then you see how that sort of extends out to the, you know, to the other parts of the world where that messaging is sent to those people too, where they sort of aspire to be those people. All the way, bro. You know, so, you know, it's, 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 I mean, as you said, it's something that I think has to be sort of addressed comprehensively. You have to look at, okay, well, what, what kind of people are we, what kind of people are we sort of striving to be? And I think again, this is this has to be sort of a re envisioning of um, sort of the ultimate purpose of of the human being and the ultimate purpose mm -hmm. of your existence. Mm -hmm. And and I think you know circumstances are gonna are gonna force people to have to take a very long hard look at that. Right. Um, but that's the question. Do you think there can be a mass awakening or a mass kind of like? Muhasaba, like in the sense of taking yourself to account uh, on a societal level before it gets so bad that, you know what I mean? Because it, it's one thing if it's like, okay, say freaking water stops coming out of the tap, there's an earthquake, you know, San Andreas, and like we're on the Hayward Fault right now. Yeah. So yeah, there exactly. was just a few days. You were, you were, you were yeah, here. Yeah, when, when, when the quake happened. It was right in Fremont. Where yeah. the, the, and so, and like Seattle, like we're due. So, may. That's not happening, I mean. But say, say you know, say it's just a big one, you know what I mean? And, and like, boom. Um, you know, like, pipes break, you know what I mean? The food stops, the shelves aren't restocked. You know, water's not coming out of the taps. Yeah. Like, then it's, boom. You know what I mean? Like, how long before it's just straight pandemonium? Does it have to get there? Or is it, can people be like, yo, we're going to wake up, we're going to not we're going to alter our patterns of consumption alter our relationship with the, the earth alter our relationship with the, uh, with each other yeah. and we're going to model on a local and then on a national level um these type of things and then the other question is is it top down do you is it the or is it like can it be bottom up like can the change come from communal level no it's funny it's it's well, it's funny you asked that that, sec that second question because I, <laughs> there was a workshop that we were doing in Switzerland, which was actually looking at that that's that exact same question is, um, you know, sort of these re um, these rehabilitation efforts for degraded land, or these um, attempts at trying to implement you know these types of management regimes, 
that are that are much more sort of re again regenerative or, uh, in nature, as far as how you you manage landscape or how you 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 rehabilitate damaged land. Is it top down or is it bottom up? Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I don't think it's necessarily a matter of either or. It's it's pretty much you know as you say in the Bay, it's it's pretty much you know how you can get in where you fit in. Mm -hmm. And in some instances, it is top down if you happen to be able to talk to those people who can implement you know um, you know those those kinds of uh, those kinds of programs, or it, it's it's from it's from bottom up. It's from grassroots. It's you know you you, you can make an appeal to communities and they, and they're able to see how adopting these things is going to benefit them. You know if they if they realize you know they're the primary stakeholders, they're the people that are gonna that are gonna see the 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 most benefit. They have ownership of the work. You know what comes from the work that they do. Um, there's certain common threads that you'll find in successful efforts. Um, but I think in, in our case, I think, you know, I find actually working in this part of the world, except outside of the people that are already sort of turned on to these issues, mm -hmm. it is a very difficult place to work because you, you have, you, you know, you, you have to sort of rewire or reconfigure people's cognitive mapping, if you will. Mm -hmm. When you say it, this part of the world, you mean where? Meaning like, you know, kind of first world, like, you know, right. you're the first world, the first world consumer industrial economies, right, right. you know, and the cultures that, you know, and, and sort of the culture that, that accompanies that, mm -hmm. is that you have a very particular um, sort of worldview mm -hmm. that kind of gets into what we were saying before about how we're, you know, how we're socialized and acculturated and, and, and educated um, to where, you know, this is like it's like the Titanic. You know, it's like you know when the Titanic first sailed, it was like this is the un this is the unsinkable ship. That's right. Even right? God Himself couldn't sink the ship. Don't say that. Right. No. <laughs> it, you know, this or or if you feel like what you have here is sort of ordained, kind of like divinely ordained, and this right. is you know this is something that God is gave us keep the going. ship and yeah, said it man. could never you know sink. Yeah. Yeah. So so if you so if that's the belief, and I think this is the fear, is you know, you know it, it is sort of like, you know, folks are living sort of this unexamined life. You know, it's this unexamined sure, life. Right. You know, there's, there's, there's no, like, people aren't prompted into having to think too deeply about what it is that they're doing. And, and, and on average, people don't change or they don't make changes mm -hmm. unless they have to. That's right. And that's, you know, and that's... Um, you know, that's that's just how we operate. Mm -hmm. You know, you 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 become the you become habituated to certain ways of being, right. and there's a certain amount of momentum that is built up that's very difficult to sort of redirect. Mm -hmm. um, so you, you know, so in, so in a way, unless something very dramatic happens that sort of knocks you into another trajectory, but you just sort of carry on because it's you know it's just the direction that you're going, and it's just it's it's what you're used to doing. It's what's comfortable. Right. And I think most people find, especially the kinds of changes that, you know, would be proposed in order to avert the kind of disaster that, um, you know, that I think most people that are familiar with, you know, this, this topic, you know, the type of disaster that a lot of people are foreseeing is on the horizon. Um, you know, one would hope that, you know, um, one would hope that the you know that this this that that the, the kinds of things that some people are talking about are likely to occur. One would hope that that they, they don't occur, but if you look at the kinds of things that are happening in, in different parts of the world, I mean, I mean, Iraq or Syria or any any number of those places where people have sort of a normal life, mm -hmm. 
and then all of a sudden <laughs> it's not normal anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, like why? You know, you have to ask yourself, well, why, why, why those people, mm-hmm. and why not us? Like why, why, you know, why are those people more sort of deserving of having their lives disrupted, mm-hmm. and not us? And to think that it can't happen here, I mean that that's just you know, you. I mean it's it's a setup, mm-hmm. you know, it's a setup, you know, and you, and what's to say that you couldn't be blindsided by something, and then all of a sudden you find yourself in a situation where, oh my God. We have to contend with, you know, with, with this completely different reality that nobody thought could happen to them because mm-hmm. they somehow thought they were beyond, mm-hmm. you know, they were beyond, you know, this from happening to them, you know, that this was somehow so far removed and they were so far outside of, you know, that set of possibilities that they didn't even think about it. They didn't even entertain the possibility. Right. Yeah. And like you said, everything in our society is really such a strong, uh, Everything is pushing you so strongly to be totally heedless. Like there's so much <clears throat> stimulation and distraction that it's just like, you know, I mean, to unplug from the matrix is not an easy piece. And even if you do say you're up on all this stuff, mm-hmm. you know, there's another space. Like I feel like when you're in kind of a liberal West Coast city, you know, places like the Bay, there's a lot of people who are would vibe with all this stuff and they're like it's it's unsustainable the fact that like you know point one percent of the population controls 75 percent of the resources or whatever like mm. it's not sustainable we you know people uh, people in their individual lives anyway are like moral like they see somebody hungry they want to give to them their neighbor you know what i mean like yeah. but they're i think a lot of people just feel like when it gets to the big picture mm. super helpless like, there's nothing I can do. So I'm just going to try to do my little whatever, whatever, be nice to people, you know, give my little charity, and then go about my business, get do what I have to in the Matrix, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, well. but, but, you know, I, I, yeah, I mean, I think it's really, I think it's really easy to, to kind of, to fall into the despair trap, mm-hmm. you know? And it, it can be very, like, really discouraging in terms of you even being able to, you know, sort of posit a, a, another way of being or another way of doing things because you just feel like you don't have the means. Um, the funny thing was, I know, like, before I started doing this and, um, you know, the work that I'm doing now, and I was transitioning out of the, you know, the work that I was doing previously, you know, I, I had, you know, I went to school for engineering and mm-hmm. I, you know, I did engineering on and off for a number of years. And then, you know, I just was like, I can't do this anymore. I can't work in an office. I can't mm-hmm. work, you know, nine to five gig. Mm-hmm. I just, I just can't. Mm-hmm. It was just something about it that, um, well, it left a lot to be desired. And, um, and you just think there's gotta be a, like, this can't be it. Right. This can't be it. It's gotta be something else. The funny thing was things didn't start happening in terms of, you know, the possibility of thinking of another way, another sort of another paradigm. Things didn't start happening until I allowed myself to think big enough. Mm. Like in terms of sort of the, 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 the size and the scale and the, and the, you know, I mean, the, the possibility that another way was possible. 
Um, and I don't mean in sort of the kind of wishy-washy, amorphous, um, non-specific, mm-hmm. you know, way of thinking like another way as possible. But there, there, there really is sort of in, in, in terms of the practicalities of creating another paradigm, another model, um, like that's out there. But you have to you have to allow yourself to entertain that possibility. And then you can start putting the pieces together to actually move in that in that direction to where now I find myself in a position where, like, if you asked me, you know, five or six years ago that I would be in this place. Um, I would I would probably say it would be highly un- that I would like to think it was possible, but I wouldn't necessarily think that. I, I you know, it, it would be likely. And if anything, I've, I've, I actually find myself in a position that is probably beyond, at least at this point, beyond what I thought I was going to be able to do, mm-hmm. you know, five or six years ago. Right. So, for example, I just came from, you know, this this international conference I've been attending the last four years in Switzerland, where now I'm I'm talking, you know, we the, I'm now co-director mm-hmm. of an organization called the Permaculture Research Institute, which is directed by the man I went to go. Train with, Jeff train Lawton. under Jeff Lawton. He, you know, he had asked me to become a director last sep- September, which was complete out of blue. I didn't, that was not something I was expecting. We're now an organization that is uh, accredited by the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification, United Nations Climate Technology Center and Network. You know, we've we've you know been doing project work with governments. Um, members of, of royal families in the Middle East. You know, we've got project work all over the world. Um, you know, people are inviting us to come, you know, to do work with them. We just, you know, we have people in, most recently in Iran, that want us to come back and do work with, you know, with them in Iran. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, all, all of these things that have begun to open up, because I think there is this understanding that there's a need for these, you know, for, for, for some kind of alternative sort of, to allow people to escape from what I think a lot of folks are seeing as being this very unpleasant, um, uh, destructive future. Mm. And I think if you, you have to sort of allow yourself to, to think of another set of possibilities that doesn't necessitate us running us ourselves and the world into the ground. And, and, you know, and, and intention is a powerful thing. It's a very powerful thing. And I, and I think if, if, you know, allowing yourself to really have to, to have a big intention, a good intention. Um, that's when things start happening. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I and I and and honestly, that is precisely what happened in, in the case of, you know, of myself and, and a number of other people that have started doing this work is that things didn't start happening until they allowed themselves to think big enough. Mm. What um, what are some of the projects or things you're involved in or specific maybe um, initiatives or locations that you're most excited about? Um, well, most recently, um, again, I, you know, the last couple of years we've been trying to develop this relationship with UNCCD and uh, they are now wanting to embark on this initiative to look at this, again, 2 billion hectares of degraded land worldwide, and specifically looking at this 500 million hectares globally that have been abandoned, that we can actually start doing some of this, 
you know, rehabilitation work on. And I had, um, I had put together some ideas as to how we can scale up and, and speed up reclamation work um, in, in some of these areas. Uh, one project in particular, there's, there's actually um, something called the Great Green Wall of Africa, which um, is supposed to be a, a, a band of trees. It's 8,000 kilometers long, 15 kilometers wide, that goes across the entire Sahelian band, basically to prevent the migration of the Sahara Desert further south in the sub-Saharan Africa. Hmm. And there's already been work started in Senegal, and you know it's making its way across uh, the continent. And so I, I was talking to some folks about how, you know, say for instance, that particular project could be um, helped in its ability to establish that work um, faster. And there are a number of other places that we can, you know, we can implement the same measures. But you know, we currently have work in uh, Yemen, in Tarim, in the Hadhramaut Valley. We have work in Saudi in uh, the governor of Mecca, a project called the Al-Baitha project. Mm. In Mecca yeah. itself. In, in the governor of Mecca, in a mm -hmm. place called Wadi al-Khanik. Mm -hmm. It's like a um, suburb. It's like a suburb. Well, it's, it's, a, it's actually an outlying area in, 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 uh, in the desert. It's actually being mostly, um, uh, the work is mostly being done by a, by a Bedouin tribe. Um, it's, it's, the project was managed by a, a colleague of ours named Neil Spackman, and he's been doing some amazing work. Um, in that area. Uh, we have work in um, Jordan, who we've been doing work with, uh, actually with the uh, help of uh, Prince, uh, Princess Basma bin Adi, who's a member of the Jordanian royal family. Mm -hmm. um, we had ju I just taught a course with Jeff uh, back in the spring there. Uh, we have a site in the Jordan Valley um, called Greening the Desert 2. Uh, you can find some things online about that. Um, I'm supposed to go back and teach a course uh, in November, the same site. Uh, we have work in Turkey. Uh, I'm actually sp uh, supposed to teach a course in Turkey uh, in uh, late August, early September. Um, Morocco. Uh, we have work uh, New Zealand. Again, sites in Australia. Mm -hmm. Uh, we actually recently had another site up in Scotland that was that was just uh, that was just started, um, and we have, there's, there's, there, there are opportunities all over the place. And I think that what's encouraging is you know we get more and more inquiries all, you know all the time. Uh, to mention Iran, uh, Jeff had done some work uh, with the Iranians. Interestingly enough, the, the Ministry of Agriculture in Iran um, back in 2008-2009, and we had recently got gotten some results back from the work that they had started then, um, actually late last year. And Jeff had, you know, sent me the slideshow. He says, you wait till you see this. And they got some incredible, um, and some incredible uh, results from the work that they'd done in Fardis province, which is, it's the, it's the province that borders the, the eastern side of the uh, eastern portion of the Persian Gulf. And they had implemented some sort of, you know, some large scale composting program on about 5,000 hectares of agricultural land. And in some cases, in many cases, they got, you know, these really great increases in, in agricultural output and then, you know, improvement of, of um, the function of landscape there. But probably some of the more dramatic increases they got were, were a threefold increase in output, but for a two-thirds reduction 
in water use. So the, basically for only using one third of the water they would typically use, they got three times the output. Mm -hmm. And these are the kinds of things that we can see, that we see in, in a number of places that have implemented you know, similar types of programs. And uh, I think the more that this information gets out, you know, the, the, I, think, I like to think the more hope that people will have that you know, we can do things um, differently, um, again, more intelligently, uh, and, and in a way that actually, um, I think, reflects well on our species, <laughs> um, and, and can actually you know get, present us with um, a hopeful future. But we have to, but you have to decide that this is something that you want to do. And I think until people get to the point that it becomes a priority, and they really see it as a as a as a possibility, they can envision themselves engaging in that activity. Um, it's not going to happen. But um, I think we're seeing that more and more people are coming around to you know coming around to that because again we can't continue to do things that. To do the types of things that we're doing, um, we got we got to we got to think differently. So the in in Africa, the desert is basically spreading. Is that is that yeah, what's happening? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it's going south. Yep. Yeah. And this is the way to basically stop desertification is to plant, basically. Well, yeah, I mean, the, the, the desertification is, well, there, there are a few things that, that characterize desertified areas. I mean, arid areas are, are usually defined as areas that have more evaporation than they have precipitation. Mm. <clears throat> so if you go to a place like the, the GCC countries, you know, the Gulf countries, the Gulf states, um, you know, you may have, you know, on average, anywhere from maybe 70 to 150 millimeters of rain a year. But, you know, the rate of evaporation is something like 2,500 to 4,500 millimeters a year. So you have, you know, literally 40, 50, 60 times the amount of water that actually leaves leaves the area then actually falls as rain. Mm -hmm. um, but what's interesting about that particular part of the world is that it was not always like that. Right, right, right. So if you go back, a few thousand years, and, you, and, and there's, there's, there's actually you know quite a quite a bit of work that you can find that that um, supports this, and you can see from satellite photos areas you can see places that that used to be sort of the basins of lakes mm -hmm. or rivers. Mm -hmm. um, you know there there have been agricultural digs where they found remnants of woolly mammoth. I mean ruminants, you know mm -hmm. large large mm -hmm. grass eating animals. I mean I've I've done work in Western Sahara. Um, which is, you know, you know, it's desert. And I've seen cave paintings of um, the depiction of hunting parties. Mm. And you see animals like giraffes or, mm. you know, or, or buffalo, like kind of large animals with, with, with uh, horns, you know, with hunting parties that are, that are behind them. And you go out and look at these landscapes. And, uh, and, you're, you know, and, and obviously it's not in a condition now to support, you know, those kinds of animals. But you could, if you go back far enough in history, you, I mean, a lot of North, I mean, North Africa was forested, right. you know, and, and in some historical accounts, it said it was, it was so heavily forested that, in, that, you know, uh, you know, like a squirrel could, could cross the entire continent without ever touching the ground. Right. Right. You would have that kind of tree cover. Um, and so, you know, once you remove the, the, the vegetation in an area, once you remove the shade or the cover, that would prevent, you know, the kind of heavy evaporation that you see now in desertified areas. 
um, sort of that condition worsens faster and faster mm -hmm. to where you eventually actually affect the weather. So you start, you start to disrupt um, things like the water cycle, all the big biogeochemical cycles. So, so once you start affecting that, then over, over time, you vastly alter um, the actual physical condition of you know, those, those parts of the world to, to where you no longer have that kind of cycling, that kind of dynamic, um, which allows for you to have vegetation and then also allows for, for people to be able to live in those areas. So, and you're seeing that happen in more and more places. I mean, even in places like Southeast Asia that get heavy rain. So if you go to a place like Kuala Lumpur, mm -hmm. you go to a place like Thailand, you know, even Bangkok, there's a story earlier this year, I mean, actually not that long ago, that said that Bangkok is actually in danger of running out of water. Mm -hmm. And now this is a place that gets like 3,000 millimeters of it's rain a year. Yeah. yeah, but it, it's, but there's, there's, because so, so much of that place is being paved over, um, because a lot of the, you know, the vegetation has been removed, um, it doesn't have a chance to get back into the ground. And then also um, the way that the, the weather, the weather behaves, that's altered because again, those things that would regulate, um, you know, the, the, the way that water moves between the land and the atmosphere, they're, they're all gone. So it's, you know, after you see enough places where this is happening, it becomes actually quite predictable. Right. And, um, you know, it, it, but it, you can, it can, you, it can be changed. Right. It can be you know? reversed. It can be reversed, but you have to you have to do the right thing. You know, you have to actually resolve to do the things necessary in order to you know to change the condition. Right. So it's conceivable that. So what would be like basically if you had all the resources, what is the what is the method to. Reverse, for instance, if you're talking to Africa or other places, because it's a lot of places you mentioned. It seems like they're deserts, like Middle East, a lot, a lot of Middle Eastern places. Um, I know, for, like Yemen has had some serious issues, and they talk about Sena. I mean, even mm -hmm. before freaking started getting bombed by yep. Saudis, yep, but yep. like before that, there was talking about Sena being the first major city to run out of water. Yeah, a absolutely. lot of it has to do with. Qat production, Qat, yep. right? Because yep. they, they, you know, for those that don't know, Qat is this narcotic, which is like coca leaves, yep. which people chew. And, you know, it's a cash crop. You make bread right, because right. everyone chews it so much, but it takes a lot of water, yep. a lot of water. And so it's, you're just wasting water. And, of course, like, you know, that project, you know, making you know, making the desert bloom in Jordan. You're, you're talking about the desert. So it's like, what is the method to if you had the resources to just create a, an oasis in the desert because that's a, a tripped out thing you could just create a man-made oasis in the most inhospitable of circumstances well the, the funny thing is that actually does is that oases are are um purpose built arrangements of vegetation that allowed for very harsh places to be suitable for, for human habitation. Right. Um, so, I mean, these, so this is something that had been done, you know, for, for a very long time. I mean, you know, you can go to some places that have oases that have been constructed literally two millennia ago. Mm, and they so still, they're man-made. Oasis yeah, are man-made. And, the, and, and they're still productive. So, you know, you have, you know, you have a, a ready-made example that demonstrates to you 
how in those kinds of settings you need to um, sort of create a type of natural infrastructure that can that can support people. Even even in Europe or North America, you know, more temperate climates, same thing. I mean, most of most of those continents, you know, they they, they used to be like savannas, like oak savannas. Right, right. And in some cases, I mean, I know a couple of people that have been doing work on this. I mean, they're 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 chestnut trees or oak trees that are literally thousands of years old that are still producing. And then usually you'll find in these places that they would have a combination of some kind of, again, uh, sort of treed landscape that also had livestock, usually large herds. Mm. And the large herds would be pushed across landscape by predators. And it was this movement that actually allowed for the fertility of these places to be renewed. I mean, this is how these places were kept alive, is that there would just be this whole sort of symbiotic relationship between animals and plants and landscape. And it was this, this sort of, uh, this orchestrated cycling of life, mm. you know, birth, growth, death, decay. That was all sort mm-hmm. of part and parcel of what made these places what they were. This is how the world was made uh, yeah, the, this is how people were able to actually exist in these landscapes. Is that that cycle. before supermarkets? Yeah, before yeah, before <laughs> before supermarkets. But I mean, in the cases of you know of, of you know, if we had our if we had the ability to be able to to get access to the resources that would allow us to do this work in a big way, I mean, it's pretty much the same uh, basic uh, logical progression. Mm-hmm. Is that you first have to design landscapes for water, and in dry places and arid places, you have to prevent or you have to stop the fast evaporation. So mm-hmm. you have to actually create some kind of cover. Mm-hmm. So once you once you're able to create some kind of cover that cuts the evaporation, <clears throat> then you can start to establish something because you're. Because the thing you need in order to, to, to mm-hmm. establish some kind of growth, which is water, mm-hmm. you're now able to actually prevent that particular resource from leaving the landscape. Mm-hmm. The funny thing is in a lot of those places, a lot of arid places, you actually get um, periodic flooding. So you get like times of year, you know, a time of year where you get, you know, a huge sort of mm-hmm. uh, dumping of a lot of water mm-hmm. and then you get flash floods. And then the rest of the year, you don't get anything. Mm-hmm. So the key, the key to designing, you know, in in, in arid landscapes and in, in hot places, in desertified places, is you have to you have to get ready for the water when it sh- for when it shows up. Mm-hmm. And if you don't if you don't do the work necessary in order to capture the water when it shows up, then you got to wait a long time mm-hmm. before it shows up again. The problem now is because the the, the weather patterns have become that much more erratic. Um, it's hard to predict when the water show up. So it becomes increasingly more important, more important to do the work necessary to be able to catch water and then get it, get it in the ground. Or, How do you do that? Well, in a lot of places where the land has become like he- heavily degraded, the ground's very hard. Mm-hmm. You know, it's almost like rock. Mm-hmm. So you actually have to get 
below that very hard, baked over, compacted layer, which allows for the water to be able to get below the surface. Because right now, the, you know, a lot of water, because especially if it comes in, a, in, in you know, kind of huge volumes and, 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 and huge quantities, and the ground's not ready to take it on, then it just hits the, hits the ground and it runs. So you have to create infrastructure that's able to hold on to water. It doesn't allow it to run away and it doesn't allow for it to, to evaporate. So you have to sort of kind of create features in landscape to be able to hold on to water for a longer period of time to get it in the ground or to convert the water immediately to growth. So, you know, a lot of what we talk about is, you know, creating infrastructure and landscape to be able to slow water, infiltrate it into the ground, sink it, you know, to stop it and then to sink it, in, uh, below the surface, and then, when possible, convert that immediately to growth. Again, because the growth creates cover. The more growth, the more cover you create, then you, you increasingly decrease the amount of evaporation, and then you can start to establish other types of, 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 uh, of uh, say, more productive uh, species, um, you know, tree crops or what have you, um, that can then start to, if you get it on a large enough scale, then you actually can have an effect say regionally mm-hmm. on things like temperature, sure. even even weather. Because you have to also remember that vegetation, it transpires water. Mm. So it actually can slowly release water back into the atmosphere. You can, you can decrease um, sort of local temperatures or regional temperature. Mm-hmm. And then you're literally affecting the dynamics, like the in, the way that energy mm-hmm. transfers between the land and the atmosphere. And you can actually start changing regional weather, mm-hmm. you know, and then that's how you can sort of restart, you know, certain certain weather cycles in areas. Man, yeah, that's intense. And that makes sense. Why, like, if you're the Emirates or like, one, you know, Saudi, where you have just freaking unlimited wealth. Yeah. <laughs> and you just got a desert. Yeah. And you're like, this oil's going to run out sooner or later. Mm-hmm. Like, and we live in a freaking terribly inhospitable place. Dude, like, I was in Abu Dhabi for like a week, and uh, it was like the summer. Uh, it's, it's so hot out there mm-hmm. that basically life is like this. You're in a highly air-conditioned home. Mm-hmm. Like, just every room <laughs> blasting. And then you have to go, you, whatever, go to work or, you know, wherever you're going that day. You walk outside, drenched in sweat instantly. Yeah. Get to your car, elasting the AC. Yeah. Go to work, uh, get out, of, you park your car, get out of your car, walk into your office, soaking with sweat in that walk. Yeah. And then just blasting AC. Yeah. Like you create this completely artificial environment. No, absolutely. Like... It's, and you know, it's like 115, 120 degrees easy most days, Mm -hmm. you know, and then it's just like, it's crazy that people live there. And that's why, like, before they struck oil, like, it was just super sporadic um, villages right by the water where they would, it was diving village. Like, that was the whole income. They would dive for pearls. Yeah. And, you know, we're talking about people that develop just the lung capacity to be underwater for 10, 15 minutes without any, without any tanks. Right. You know what I mean? <laughs> and then all of a sudden just freaking struck oil and it's like, let's build 
the biggest mall possible right with a freaking <laughs> with a ski slope inside yeah, we yeah, can. yeah yeah but i mean you would think if you have some foresight they would be like yo it doesn't have to always be 120 degrees man at least we could try to like have a little project where we create you know what i mean where we start to really radically alter the 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 condition of this but you know what I mean? well, well you know it's funny you mentioned that because um I actually I almost forgot that we, we actually had some work there. When I, the, the year that I went down to to train with Jeff at the farm, actually while while I was at the farm, um, he had gotten a call from a company called uh, EDAW EDAW, which is now a subsidiary of a, of a very large global consulting firm called uh, ACOM, and they had called to get some input on um, on a on a project they were trying to compete for mm-hmm. you know to get a con- to, to get a contract mm-hmm. called Mazdar City. And uh and Mazdar City is in Abu Dhabi. And it happens to be um at the time it was marketed as the most ambitious sustainable development project in the world. Now the funny thing was I had read about Mazdar probably a couple of years, maybe two or three years before um you know he uh, you know before I went to Australia. And I was interested in the project then, and then it was, you know, very odd that he that I happened to be on the farm when he got that call. And then he went and had three meetings with these people, you know, to give them some su- su- suggestions. And um, long story short, uh, they ended up winning the contract. And uh, and that was sort of my first foray into at least thinking of, of the possibility of 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 getting into this kind of work Mm. Um, because it sort of touched on some of my previous experience in in doing engineering design work, um, um, sort of, you know, contract work or consulting work. And um, that kind of gave us a sense of the possibilities that might be out there for really doing this, like, like as a, either as a career or sort of creating another niche inside of that consulting industry, that this was the type of development work um, that was going to be um, in demand. And now, Mazdar City is an interesting project because it was supposed to be sort of a showcase for all of the different um, kind of state-of-the-art sustainable technologies. And the contract that we subcon- that we were sort of subcontract- subcontracting on was for the landscape architecture of Mazdar City. So Mazdar's own, I mean, the city's not big. It's six square kilometers. It's 600 hectares. Um, but the project was, I think the price tag was something like, somewhere between 16 and $22 billion. So it was ridiculous. You know, it was like $37 million a hectare if you, you know, if you break down the cost. Um, so, you know, so a, a lot of what we suggested you know, for that particular project is exactly the kind of thing that you see in, you know, the, the oasis, mm-hmm. you know, the, you know, the type of oasis that you saw traditionally in that part of the world. The problem is that I think a lot of what, what they were hoping to do was sort of, you know, an attempt to try to mimic what you see, what they saw happening in Europe mm-hmm. or in America, mm-hmm. 
which is it it just doesn't fit that they setting. They wanted an evergreen forest. <laughs> like that. Yeah, I mean it's it just doesn't fit that setting. And I think it's I think it speaks to a bigger problem that is like plaguing that part of the world is that there's this type of like inferiority complex mm. seemingly. Mm-hmm. To where there's 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 a desire to sort of forsake uh, 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 the things that sort of made those places functional in the, in, to begin with. And it was something that's very much a part of their identity, you know, mm-hmm. their cultural mm-hmm. heritage and, and identity, like historically speaking, um, in favor of trying to shoehorn something that just simply doesn't fit that place. Right. And and I thought it was very, you know, very interesting that the, the solution that was put forward for that particular project was something that comes from there. Mm-hmm. I mean, even when we went to go do some, you know, we went to, to teach a couple of courses in, in Yemen. Um, and I thought this was one of the, the really great things about the, the, what could potentially be offered by um, this work is it, it gives people an opportunity to reconnect to a portion of their heritage or their culture that has been, again, forgotten. Was when we, when we taught the course in, in Hadramaut, um, one of the agricultural engineers that was part of the first cohort that we were that we were teaching had brought to us a, a book of uh, translated South Arabian poetry, mm. you know, translated into English. And and one of the reasons why they brought the book was because when we started talking about this whole concept of sort of a food forest, kind of perennial polycultures, I mean, essentially, you know, talking about agricultural oases, they would look at the book at the poetry books because they would talk about what was planted. Mm-hmm. in the landscapes mm-hmm. and so it was almost a way of, of being able to connect again sort of this 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 very long-standing sort of cultural expression to a, 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 a very practical sort of contemporary mm-hmm. application to inform mm-hmm. them of what used to be out there for sure you know and I thought it was very powerful in that it's a, it's a you know it's a type of revival it's a type of tajdeed right you know of uh you know, of, of this sort of, of this cultural understanding that could be, I think it'd be quite powerful because it, it, I mean, in more, there are a number of places that I went to where they had that same, that same sort of cultural expression. When I went to Somaliland two years ago, it's the same thing. I, was, I talked to them about the experience in Yemen because, you know, the, mm-hmm. the, the cultures between those two mm-hmm. places are still very, are very much, they're right. very linked and they're very close. And he said, yeah, no, you know, we, we used to, we used to do the same thing. Mm. We used to write poetry about the landscapes, mm, mm. and we don't, you know, we don't do that anymore. And I think what's interesting is, you know, kind of on a, on a, I think on a sort of more a deeper level, um, the the condition of the landscapes ends up becoming a sort of a metaphor for the condition of the people, mm. and vice versa. Mm. You know, and Wendell Berry, who you know is a prominent American poet, a kind of poet laureate and, and farmer, you know, he said in a nut, you know. Paraphrasing, he said, "If you want to save the people, then you have to save the land. Mm-hmm. But if you want to save the land, you have to save the people. Mm-hmm. So they're inextricably linked. And and you see this in the more places you go, you see that the land and the people are very much reflect, reflective of one another. They become metaphors for each other. Mm. And um, and I and I think you know again, it becomes that much more of a motivation for wanting to do this work because it, it ultimately." You're not so much interested in the landscapes as much as you're interested in the people, right? You know, and um, and I, and I, and it's an it's a great opportunity to be, to be able to extend yourself in a type of service that you know is is helping people in a very um, in a fun you know foundational 
fundamental, elemental way, you know, and ultimately I think that's what, what you know, that's why we, we're doing this work is mm -hmm. that it's really about trying to help folks. Mm -hmm. That's deep, man. Yeah, that's a good note. That's a good note to end on, man. Alhamdulillah. Alhamdulillah. Allah bless you and all this work, man. Likewise, One likewise. See, inshallah, we're gonna we're gonna get you out there, man. Oh yeah, man. Yeah, get my hands in the dirt, man. That's right. I'm at your service. <laughs> <laughs> at your service. Alhamdulillah. May Allah continue to just increase you and bless you, Amen. man. And uh, spread the benefit far and wide. Amen. Amen. Amen.